Uh, for those of you who don't know, I am Pastor Nathan, and I am just blessed to be here with you today. We're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 24. And what we're talking about this morning is how to trip up our guilt trips. How many of you have ever been praying, and suddenly your conscience says, look at you. Who do you think you are? How dare you come before God and have the audacity to ask anything of him, right? Just a week ago, you remember, you said things that disqualify you from coming in his presence. You know, just the other day, you know, you had that, that bad attitude. Don't you remember how you treated your spouse? Don't you remember how you treated your kids? What about those thoughts, those impure thoughts you entertained for just a little bit too long? Yeah, you know, I know that you know. You know, that person you chose to ignore that was in need, some child of God you are disgraceful. You know, pff, you think you could come to God and ask him for anything? What a joke. You ever had that situation? Right? Maybe this morning, even? <laughs> you know, it happens every day. You know, these types of thoughts that come into our mind when our conscience assaults us, they can shut down our prayer life, and they do shut down our prayer life like nothing else, because it's very hard to come before God in prayer when we don't have the confidence and the assurance that God still welcomes you, that God still loves you, that God still is willing to hear you. You know, as we've been studying through John chapter three, John has been clearly establishing um, the, the identity that we have as children of God. That's been his big topic, that we are children of God and you could know that. You could know that as it's demonstrated by the habitual desire that one has, the practice of living as a child of God to, to obey him, to, to keep his commands. Not that we do so perfectly without error, but, but inside our desire, our intent, the trajectory of our life is, God, I want to obey you. God, I want to honor you. I want to choose obedience. I want to pursue and, and learn and live truth. God, my, my intent is to love my brothers and sisters in Christ as you have loved me, but life experience tells every single Christian that even though we may indeed be a child of God, we may indeed be saved, we may indeed be characterized by the habitual desire for righteousness, at times we stumble, don't we? At times we fall down, we choose disobedience, we fail in our efforts to glorify him, and when that happens, the devil and our own conscience is so quick to condemn us, to cause us to lose confidence in our salvation, to cause us to lose confidence in our status as, as God's kids, to lose confidence in our calling and what God has, has laid upon our lives to do in obedience to him, and we lose our confidence in our ability to approach him even in the moment of stumbling, to ask him for grace and mercy and help that we need in that time of need. Well, what John has to teach us here today, this morning, in 1 John 3, 19 through 24, I believe is of vital import importance to the daily life of a believer. It teaches us what to do when our hearts condemn us. It teaches us what to do when our own guilt trips cause us to shrink away from the presence of God cause us to, to, instead of coming to him, to go and hide and try and get away from him. It teaches us what to do when our confidence and assurance and our standing as his children starts to waver, 
starts to wobble a little bit. And the topic of the section we're looking at this morning is confidence. Confidence. He, he briefly brought up this topic at the end of chapter two when he was talking about having confidence at his coming, right? He was talking about, look, keep desiring, keep, keep seeking out, keep asking the Holy Spirit to help us to choose obedience, to, to do the things he's calling us to do so that when he returns, we'd be able to stand there confidently and not ashamed. But here, the topic is in the context of having that same confidence every single day as we live for him. So John uses words here like know, reassure, confidence, as I said, and it's a confidence that is based on the fact that we have believed in Jesus Christ as our Savior, and thus we can know that we are in the family of God as demonstrated by this habitual desire of loving others in the family, of wanting to choose obedience, and since our habitual desire is to love him and to love others, and because that demonstrates our sonship, the fact that we've been adopted into his family, every day we can remain confident that even if we stumble, he still welcomes us. He still loves us. He still stands with open arms, always, and any time, saying, come into my presence. Come to me to hear our prayers, especially the prayers that we need to offer him when we need forgiveness, when we need grace, when we need mercy, and we need help. But we're gonna start today by coming into his presence in worship. We wanna set our hearts right before him, and so we're gonna spend some time praising his name, entering into his gates with thanksgiving, as the word says, his courts with praise, because he is almighty, he is God, he has died for us, he has saved us, and that is worth praising him for, amen? God, we thank you so much, Lord, for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you, God, that, that you paid the price for our sin, that you pioneered the trail back to you, Lord, that there would be no hindrance between us and you and our fellowship and our relationship with you, our creator. But God, sometimes, sometimes our conscience, which can be a very good thing, goes overboard and condemns us and causes us to hide and shrink away from you and do the very thing that makes it worse, to not come to you and confess, to not come to you and say, God, I've stumbled, please forgive me, help me to choose obedience. And Lord, we wanna be reminded, especially those today, Lord, who, who may be today, this morning, walking with a shaken confidence, Lord. Maybe they have been um, condemned by their own conscience through, through, through stumbling and through failure to choose obedience, Lord, and they're here today wondering if you still love them. And I pray, God, today, very mightily and boldly, they would leave here knowing you still love them, you still welcome them, and they are still your child. So Lord, we want to worship you for these truths. We want to praise your name because you are glorious. We love you so much and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, we are in 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 24 this morning, and so I'm going to read it for context. It says, this is how we will know that we belong to the truth and will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. Dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive whatever we ask him because we keep his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. 
Now this is his command, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps his command, keeps his commands, remains in him, and he in him. And the way we know that he remains in us is from the spirit he has given us. Powerful section of scripture, you know, and it starts out there saying this is how we will know we belong to the truth, right? He's referring to the previous paragraph as he just talked about, look, the person who does what is right is God's child. The person who does what is wrong is Satan's child. He goes, so if you do what is right, you are God's child. But then he says, especially those who love the brothers and sisters in the fellowship. That Christian love towards one another is, is one of the ways that we know we belong to the truth. It's our habitual desire in loving our Christian brothers and sisters in action and in truth, as it said in the previous section. And when we have that in our life, it can give us the confidence that we know we belong to the truth. Now that phrase, we belong, simply is talking about that, that, that fact that you can know that you're truly a believer, that you're truly saved, that you're behaving as his kid, and, and, and belonging to the truth means that, that we know. We have confidence that we are his according to the truth of the gospel, the truth of who Jesus is, the truth of God's will. You know, Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so it's all wrapped around this confidence of knowing that we belong to the truth. This idea bookends this whole section here. In verse 19, he opens up with, this is how we know. And then in verse 24, he ends with, and the way we know, right? It bookends this whole thing. And so this, this knowing, this confidence that we are indeed his kids, that we know that, that's, that, that, that's a foundation of our living. It's very important to John as he's writing this letter because having that confidence or lacking that confidence has a very radical effect on our daily fellowship with God. Now verse 19 and verse 22 gives us the context of this daily fellowship with God. Verse 19, it says, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and will reassure our hearts before him. Before him is the context here. It's, it's referring to our position of living under God's continual observation. That's what that phrase before him means, that God is always watching, right? God always sees. But in verse 22, we get the second half of this daily fellowship that the, is the context here when he refers to receiving whatever we ask from him. That's referring to our prayer life. That's referring to our regular open communication with God. But when you take the concepts of the reality of us being before him and then the call to be praying and talking to God regularly, you get the idea of unbroken, face-to-face -face relationship that has open communication. That's the context of the daily fellowship with God that he's talking about here. That we have an unbroken face-to-face relationship, unbroken fellowship with God, and that is evidenced in or, or lived out in an open communication, a regular communication between us and him. Incidentally, this is what Adam and Eve had with God before the fall, right? They walked with God in the garden. They were with him all the time. They were face to face with the Lord. They had regular communication. They talked to him on a regular basis, but then when they chose disobedience, what did they do? They hid. They broke fellowship. They ceased communication. And so this is what John is dealing with here. Now, what is it that, that drives a child of God away from God when they stumble, when they choose disobedience, when they're 
um, unloving towards our brothers and sisters and they know it. What is it that drives them away? Well, it's the word heart there that's used four times in verses 19 through 21. That word heart, he goes, this is how we know we will belong to the truth and we'll reassure our hearts before him. That word heart is not talking to the actual physical, you know, <laughs> heart in our chest. It's a word that means conscience. When our conscience, um, it re, uh, we need to reassure our conscience. It's the idea here of the heart as the center of a person's thoughts, a center of a person's emotions, a center of a person's knowledge of right from wrong. It's the conscience here. Now, what is the conscience, right? That's, that's the big question, you know. Um, uh, the secular definition says the sense of moral goodness or blameworthiness of one's own conduct, intentions, or character. That's the conscience. We've all heard the term. We're all familiar with the idea of our conscience, right? It's like the warning signals or the warning lights in your car, right? You have these, these warning signals in your car, and one of them lets you know you left the emergency brake on, right? Take the emergency brake off. One of them lets you know the oil pressure's low. One of them lets you know, you know, there, there's all these warning lights that are, that are like, hey, something's amiss, and, and I'm trying to warn you so that you can fix it. Our conscience is like the built-in warning signal that we've been created with. And it's generally a positive thing for us. It's generally a positive thing. Just as those lights in your car need to be wired properly, and you need to understand what they mean in order for them to function properly, um, our, our conscience needs to be properly schooled in God's truth, in God's word, to work as God intended. Now, you might say, well, we have a conscience before we're saved, before we're a Christian, so it's not an exclusively uh, Christian thing, and that is true. But our conscience, as, as people before salvation, it's broken, it's selective, it's relative, it, it, it functions according to the world's standard, right? When you look at the conscience as this thing that, that, that tells us the goodness or the blameworthiness of something, right? Is something right, is something wrong? Without Christ, it's operating to a relative standard, and that's what we see in the world today. What's true for you is not true for me, right? You do you, boo. You live your truth, right? That's, that's kind of the world today, and that's why things can't, can't find any type of common or, 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 or um, yeah, just a common moral ground because I think this is right. And the person goes, no, I think that's wrong. I think this is right. And, and nobody has a clear definition. It's because people reject God who is the clear definition, who is the one who establishes the moral definition of right and wrong. And so our conscience, when it's aligned to the world, it's all over the map. It's all over the place. But when one is saved, when one is born again, regenerated, your conscience now functions according to a new standard. Your, function, your conscience now functions according to God's standard. And you've all experienced it that have been saved, right? You got saved, and, and suddenly you seem to have a sharper sense of sin, right? You seem to have a, 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 a sharper sense of right and wrong. You, you, you start to see wrong in things that were never wrong to you before, right? That's that conscience that now has in, been, uh, been, been aligned with God's will. And the problem, though, is that our heart, our heart, according to Scripture, is deceitfully wicked. And although our heart, our conscience, can have a very positive function in our life as, a, as warning signals, it can also be a liar, it can also be a liar, and on top of that, even a conscience in good working order cannot force obedience in anybody's life. We've all been there, right? 
where our conscience aligned with God's will is saying that's not something that's gonna honor God, don't do it. But we choose to do it anyways. It's kind of about what John's been talking about through this whole letter. You know, I had a, a young adult once. I did young adults ministry for about 10 years here, and I remember a story. I can't remember if she called me or I just heard it from someone else, but we got the call that it's like, hey, I'm far away and my engine blew up. I was like, your engine blew up? What happened? I don't know. I don't know. I was just driving, and all of a sudden, it started sputtering, and then bang, bang, and then it stopped. It's like, well, were there any lights on on the dash? Well, yeah, there were a few. Well, did you have one that looked like, like a, little, a little pan with a spout on it, the oil light? Oh, yeah, no, that one's been on for months. <laughs> that means you didn't have any oil in your engine. That's why your engine blew up. Oh, I didn't know, what, I didn't know that that's what it meant, right? You know, you, you, you got to understand the warning, but then even then understanding it, you got to obey the warning. And that's kind of the positive side of our conscience. But Christians who disregard their conscience altogether, you're headed for trouble. You're headed for trouble. Now, the issue is when we momentarily, when a believer momentarily chooses to ignore our God-aligned conscience, we choose to ignore our heart in that regard, and we choose disobedience. We choose the unloving action. Problem is, is our conscience can be brutal, can be brutal and extreme in its judgment. And that's what he writes there in verse 20 when he says, whenever our hearts condemn us. You know, that word condemn there means to convict. It means to pass final judgment. This is when our conscience goes beyond, hey, warning, that's, that's, that's not honoring God. It's when our conscience goes beyond that and says, oh, you've done it now. You're done. I'm passing final judgment upon you. You can't possibly be saved. You're not a child of God. Don't you dare try to come to him. Don't you dare approach him for, for forgiveness. No, 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 you should run away and hide like Adam and Eve did. That's what you should do. You've messed up. He doesn't love you anymore. He's not gonna welcome you. You're a failure. You're a fraud. And sometimes that's exactly what our conscience does. And so we stumble. We fall. And then as that guilt becomes a guilt trip, we find ourselves avoiding the presence of God. We find ourselves hiding. And in hiding, what we're not doing is confessing our sin. What we're not doing is coming before the Lord and saying, God, I messed up. I did this. Please forgive me. What we're not doing is in trying to come back and restore fellowship with God that has been broken by our choice of disobedience. And it's in those moments that our conscience needs to be reassured, as John is talking about here, reassured that we indeed still belong to the truth. Verse 19 there, that word reassure means to be persuaded or convinced. A more uh, uh, a detailed uh, definition means to exhibit confidence and assurance in a situation that might otherwise cause dismay or fear. So to exhibit confidence and assurance in a situation that might otherwise cause dismay or fear. Now, for a Christian who has stumbled and sinned, what situation can you imagine might cause dismay or fear? Standing in the presence of your father who you just sinned against. That causes dismay. 
that causes fear. We've all experienced that to some degree as children, right? When we've done wrong and we know our parents are going to find out, we're like, oh no, right? Because, you know, discipline, punishment's going to come. Some of us unfortunately grew up in situations where, where the fear was beyond a respectful fear, but it was a fear because there was uh, uh, abusive situations at hand there. But God is never abusive, but he does discipline. But the idea is that, that this situation where we might have dismay or fear, that's a situation where we need reassurance, where our hearts need reassurance. Now, contextually, we know that, that we're called to approach God even when we stumbled. We're called to come to God and confess as John established earlier in the letter when we sin, especially when we commit the sin of not loving our brothers and sisters as he just said that we are called to do, that it's our nature to do so. And the reality is that we're before him at all times, right? We're before God at all times because he is everywhere. We can't hide from God. We think just because we stop praying in the moment of our sin that God's suddenly like, oh, what happened? Where'd you go? We're like, don't make eye contact, right? He can't hear you if you don't say anything. And that's simply not true. But at times, especially when we have stumbled, we need the reassurance that we are still welcomed, we are still accepted, we are still loved. Not that there's any chance that we're not. But man, sometimes our conscience can lead us to believe it's possible that we're not. And so a reassured conscience, it's all based on the truth of who's God, who God is. He says in verse 20 there, for God is greater than our hearts. He's greater than our conscience. And he knows all things. As previously mentioned, you know, when we're saved, at salvation we're given a new nature. And our internal conscience, the, the sensitivity of our internal conscience is kind of recalibrated to God's moral standard, right? The things that weren't wrong before seem wrong now. We're suddenly going, oh my gosh, that's not right. And, and we also have this conscience that says, yeah, we want to do this. We want to pursue God. We want to, want to obey him. And because of that recalibration, in a sense, it can now warn us of right and wrong according to God's will. But it has no authority. Your conscience has no authority to dictate your standing before God at any time. When our conscience is saying, you have failed, you're done, it's over, you violated God's righteous standard. You let him down and there is no way he will welcome you back. God says, nah. The very fact that you feel guilt about violating my righteous standard, about stumbling, the very fact that you recognize that, that, that you deserve punishment for it, right? The very fact that, that, that this stumble is not your habit of living, it's not your habitual desire to disregard my will, that all speaks to the fact that you are indeed my child and that you belong to my family. It's God saying, I know you. I know your heart. I know all things. And because God knows everything about us, he knows us even better than we know ourselves, I think God is, is often more merciful with us than we are with ourselves. Right? We, we do really good at beating ourselves up when we, when we stumble and we fall. 
you know, over the course of history, we've seen mankind trying to figure out ways, you know, I gotta, I gotta pay the price for my sin, and there used to be penances, and you had to whip yourself in the back, and do all these things to somehow pay back God when you stumble, because, you know, after all, but God understands our weaknesses, and he loves us in spite of our weaknesses. He loves us anyways, and so don't cease communication when you stumble. Don't try and run and hide when you stumble. Don't continue in broken fellowship when you have broken fellowship because continuing in broken fellowship is not gonna fix the broken fellowship. Did you follow that? Don't let your heart or your conscience convict you, pass final judgment on you and say you can't come to God. Instead, well, this is what John gets into in verse 21. He says, dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. Now, this is his command, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he commanded us. So that word there, if our hearts don't condemn us, if our hearts don't convict us is what he's talking about. It's... um, Uh, the word if there in in the original language carries the connotation of since, right? Since, so it's going Christian. Since your heart cannot pass final judgment upon you, you have confidence before God. That confidence there is, is a word that means a capability to be outspoken, right? We're talking about being able to come to God confidence to be able to come to him and be bold in our speech before God. That word before God there again, it's, it's referring to this, this, this orientation of having a friendly relationship with him. Okay, I'll put it in modern slang. We good. We good. Because God is greater than our conscience when our conscience tries to pass final judgment against us, when our conscience tries to to convict us, but we're able to look into our lives and see that I do genuinely believe in the name of Jesus Christ for my salvation. I I do have a habitual desire in living that that is usually the norm of it is to to keep his commands. That's what I want generally and habitually in my life. My habitual desire, the norm in my life is to, to do what is pleasing in his sight as he says here in these verses which involves loving one another in action and in truth as he commanded us. When I could look at all of that and my conscience is saying, no, you've done it, you're done. I could look at God and say, we good. We good. We can have assurance and confidence. Although we may have stumbled in choosing obedience, although we may have stumbled in choosing love, we can continue to stand before him. We can continue to stand in his presence. We can continue to be face to face with him knowing that we are still his. Knowing that we still belong the truth. Knowing that we are still saved. We are still his children. We are still in the family. We are still loved and we are still welcomed. And so instead of we're good, question mark, it's we good, period. This confidence, it it allows us to continue to come before him with our needs when our conscience is going too far and trying to convict us. Instead of shrinking away and and hiding, instead of being deceived into thinking that that it's in the darkness that we're gonna find peace, right? In in the darkness, my guilt is gonna be assuaged and, and, and dealt with. 
this confidence allows us to ask. Even in the very moment of sin, to cry out for forgiveness. God, forgive me, I've sinned against you. To cry out, to reach out when we are sinking. God, help me. This confidence that, that we're good allows us to keep clinging to him, to never let go, to, to never break the fellowship that, that he has, has created with us. Even when our conscience is telling us the best thing to do is to run away, to hide because you're unworthy. It's, it's being in this place that despite the shame, in the midst of the guilt trip, in the midst of the guilt trip, we stand reassured knowing that according to Romans 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That then we take hold of the promise of Romans 8.33 that says, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies who is the one who condemns or convicts is the word there? My parentheses, not even our own conscience. Why? Because Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. And so therefore, according to Hebrews 4.16, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. Why? So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. That incidentally is what I believe John is primarily referring to when he says in verse 22, we receive whatever we ask from him. Yes, the, the phrasing there is referring to our prayer life in general. Yes, there is a general context of like, you know, when you're, when you're living in disobedience, you know, and you go, hey God, I, I need this, I need that. You know, our, our sin hinders our prayer life. Um, yes, when we're living obedient to his will and his commands, our prayer life is, is open. Yes, there's that, but I believe the immediate context of John's letter here, um, without dismissing prayer in general, when he says whatever we ask from him. I believe what he's specifically referring to is, is when we, Ask in confession for our choosing disobedience, even though we have a new nature and we have the Holy Spirit within us that says, hey, ask me for the help and I'll help you choose obedience. It's when we confess and ask for the mercy and grace that he just talked about there, when we stumble in obedience and love. It's asking to say, God, our fellowship is broken because of my choices and I want to restore that fellowship, so please forgive me and please help me to make a better choice next time. It's when we ask the Spirit to help us to choose obedience over disobedience, to choose love in action and truth when we're tempted not to, to choose to live according to our new nature and not our old nature, to walk in the light as he is in the light, to purify ourselves as he his peer, right? All these things John has been saying through this letter. I think that's the specific immediate context when he says whatever we ask from him. It's not specifically saying, oh God, give me a good parking space at Walmart. Well, I stumbled this morning, that's why I had to park way in the back. Yes, there's, there's a general context of sin hinders prayer, sure. But I think specifically what he's talking about here is this idea that he's been building towards through this whole letter, right? 1 John 1, 3, what we have seen and heard, we also declare to you, 
so that we may also have fellowship, that you may also have fellowship with us, right? Fellowship in the body of Christ. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That's the foundation. Our unity together, our unity with him. So then in verses five through 10 of chapter one, don't lie about if you're really in fellowship with God or not. Be honest. <laughs> Confess. And you'll be forgiven. Chapter two, verses one and two. Why? Because Jesus is our advocate with the Father and he's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Because of that, ask for forgiveness and you'll be forgiven. Chapter two, verses three through 11. If your habitual desire in living is an intent to obey his commands, you can know that you're in Christ and therefore you know you could come to him to ask when you confess, for, for, confess your sin and ask for forgiveness. Chapter two, verses 15 through 17. So, Stop loving the world and the things of the world. That's all gonna burn. Instead, love one another as he has called you to. Verses 18 through 29 of chapter two, and don't let anyone lie to you and tell you otherwise. Don't let anyone introduce new truths. Don't let anyone suggest to you that, you know, it doesn't matter if you choose obedience or disobedience because after all, the body's just gonna die and the spirit's the only thing that's saved. No, Stick to the truth that you heard from the beginning and live according to that. Why? So that you'll have confidence when he returns. Confidence in what? That you're his kid. Chapter three, verses one through three. After all, he adopted you into his family. He gave you a new nature. One day, the temptation to disobey him will be gone completely. But until that happens, with that hope in mind, choose to live a purified life now since you can because you have a new nature, since you bear his likeness and you're his kid empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so. Chapter three, verses four through 10. So when, when, when doing that, when seeking him, when, when choosing obedience and, and all that, when that is your habitual desire, desire, again, it demonstrates that you're indeed his kid. Why? Well, you know, look at Cain. His nature was of the devil. Verse 11 through 18. The way he lived demonstrated whose he belonged to, but you don't. You're a Christian. You belong to him. So, so live your nature. And what is that nature? To love one another. Practically, actually, in action and in truth, as God's kids as you are called and enabled to do. Verse 19 through 24. But if your conscience tries to pass final judgment on you when you stumble and fall and tell you otherwise, to say you're not his kid, you're not saved, he doesn't love you. He doesn't welcome you. When we momentarily, not habitually, but momentarily choose disobedience and unloving action towards our brothers and sisters in Christ, don't hide. Don't shrink away. Don't cease fellowship. Don't continue in broken fellowship. Don't cut off communication. Instead, know this. Your conscience has no authority to condemn you. Your conscience has no authority to condemn you. Instead, be reassured that if you believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, you trust in him for your salvation. If your habitual desire is that of loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, that's the norm in your life. If your habitual desire is, is a desire to, to keep his commands, to, to, to obey him, and to do what is pleasing in his sight, know that you belong to the truth. Don't believe your conscience that is telling you you don't. Don't believe the lie that you're not saved anymore. 
Don't believe the lie that God hates you now. And because you know you belong to the truth, therefore, come boldly. Come confidently into the presence of your Father and ask. And ask, yes, for for any need, but specifically, contextually, ask for forgiveness. Ask for mercy. Ask for grace. Confess your sin when you stumble. When you stumble. Ask him to restore that fellowship and ask in the time of need for the power through the Holy Spirit who enables you to choose obedience and not disobedience, to choose love and not hate, to choose to do what he's calling you to do. When the world and the devil and our flesh is tempting us otherwise, tempts us to give in to sin, And then when we stumble and fall, stands there and points the finger and says, you're guilty. And our conscience is like, yep, you're guilty. Keep the communication flowing. Keep the communication open. That your relationship and your fellowship with one another and your fellowship and your relationship with God would be unbroken, whole and unhindered. That's been the point of this whole letter. And it's hard in the moment of sin. It is difficult in the moment of sin. You just stumbled, you just fell to turn and face the pure and holy light of your Father and say, God, I'm so sorry. Some of us, our habit in nature is like, nope, I need some space. So I'm gonna go hide in the trees for a little while until the sting of the the moment goes away and then I'll come back to God and say, oh God, that thing I did two hours ago, I'm so sorry. He wants you to do that. I mean, he wants you to confess, but he wants you to know in the moment. Right now when the wound is the deepest and the guilt is the worst, to turn to him and say, I'm not gonna wallow in a guilt trip and let that drive me away from him, but instead I'm gonna come back to him and seek a restoration of the fellowship that I've broken with my disobedience. He closes with verse 24. The one who keeps his command remains in him and he in him. It's just a restatement of what he's been saying to the last couple chapters, right? That word keeps there, it's that concept of the norm for you, the overall trajectory of your life, the intent and desire of your heart is I want to obey God. It doesn't mean that you perfectly do it without ever failing. But it means in your heart of hearts, it's like, I want to please God. I want to honor him. The one who keeps his commands remains in him and he in him. And the way we know that he remains in us is from the spirit that he has given us. A reassured confidence allows us to confidently come before him at any time, at all times, even after stumbling but a clouded one weakens our confidence to the point where we don't approach him at all. And that's broken fellowship. You know, after Adam and Eve chose disobedience in the garden, their guilty conscience drove them to hide from God. And then in Genesis chapter three, verse nine, it says, so the Lord called out to the man and said to him, where are you? Where are you? Where'd you go? We used to walk together every day. 
We used to walk through the garden. We had fellowship. What happened? What happened to our fellowship? And then in Genesis 3, verse 10, it says, and he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And then we have the first example of broken fellowship with God leading to broken fellowship between his people. Verse 12, the man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate. You think that might have broke their fellowship a little bit? It's her fault, God, it's her fault. So the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. It's that separation between us and God. It's that separation between us, one another here. It's that separation that God has been trying to restore ever since. It's that broken fellowship that he has worked to restore ever since. In that story there in Genesis, it says he then slew an animal and use the skins to cover their shame. But when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, this side of the cross, God himself came to this earth and died on the cross, shed his blood, paid the price for everybody's sin, permanently and for all time. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, the permanent relationship with God that we once had is restored, fully and completely. Sonship is assured. You are adopted, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You are his kid. But Satan continues to work overtime to entice our old nature, the old nature that still resides with us while we're here on this earth, to choose disobedience, to get us to act against God's will as Eve did, right? She knew. Satan lied. Satan deceived. And our conscience in that moment, doing its job, says don't. That's disobedience to God. That's not God's will, don't do it. But when we choose disobedience anyways, Satan will heap guilt upon us. Heap guilt upon us. He will accuse us. He is the accuser, the Bible says. And then he stokes our own conscience to then condemn us and convict us. All for the purpose so that in the nakedness of our exposed sin, we will flee back to the trees as Adam and Eve did. We will flee back to the trees and hide from God. And the difference from then until now is Jesus on the cross. And so the difference now is instead of God saying, where are you? What have you done? He now says, I'm right here with you. The bushes you're hiding in, I'm right there with you. Why? Because I dwell within you. I live within you. And instead of saying, what have you done? He says, look at what I have done. And he points to the cross. And he points to Jesus dying for us. And he says, I paid the penalty for your sin. I am your sacrifice. I am the atoning sacrifice. And I will always be your sacrifice. And I will always be ready to forgive you when you come to me. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going to give you up. I'm not going to abandon you. I will now and forever be here with you. I will now and forever love you because you're my child. 
I will always grant to you mercy and grace and help when you ask in the time of need. You know, early in my ministry career, um, I had what, what many might say on the outside was success, right? Um, I, I had, had the opportunity to run uh, our junior high ministry here at the church, and it had done, just been very fruitful and very blessed, and the kids were knowing Jesus, and it was a great time, and then I was participating in leading a, a Sunday night outreach ministry here at the church called Eternity Now, right? And my big vision for that was I want to do Harvest Crusade every Sunday night. <laughs> so we're like, we're going to have bands, and we're going to have this and that, and you know, I mean, we had a cool intro video, right? I mean, you've arrived when you have a cool intro video, right? Um, and every week I, I, I preached the gospel as I was teaching through the book of Luke and every week just people were coming forward. We had altar calls and people were getting saved every week and it was just growing and, and, and we, had just, we had this incredible worship team and there was such a hunger and a desire for worship. We did 10 worship songs every single service, right? That, wow, that's crazy. We, we, we did like three or four up front, and then we had this extended worship time after, and nobody left, right? They were just all here, and then oftentimes we'd get to the end of the worship set, and they'd be like, do more, do more. It was just this beautiful, wonderful time of of God's moving spirit. But in my lack of overall experience as a a ministry leader and in the level of growth and maturity I had at the time, I didn't yet have a good handle on how to deal with the pressure of of the external perception of things versus the internal reality of things, right? And I thought, you know, if the ministry's having success, if the ministry is doing well, if things are going well spiritually in the ministry, well, then that means that I, as the leader, must be experiencing success and doing well and doing great spiritually internally. internally. Generally, I was in a good place, but in my, in my immaturity at that time, I thought that internal success meant I shouldn't be struggling with sin in any way. But I was. I was struggling with things in my own area of life, areas of obedience. You know, I wasn't in any, you know, they call big, gigantic, abject sin, but I had my own struggles with just obeying God in the moment and doing what he's calling me to do. And as I was struggling with this, I had this growing um, um, critical spirit as I was more critical on myself and my conscience was saying, you're a horrible Christian, you're a horrible Christian. I got more critical on everybody else and, and I got more unloving towards those I did ministry with and, and this led to just a growing feeling of being a fraudulent hypocrite. And so every week, you know, I'd, I'd have this question go through my mind, how, how, how could you possibly be used to lead people to Christ when you're dealing with what you're dealing with? And, you know, every week people would come up and, oh, great message, Pastor Nathan. I wasn't pastor at the time, so I was just Nathan. <laughs> great message, Nathan. Oh, your ministry is, is ministering to me so much. And I'd have a smile on my face and I'd say, hey, praise God, thank you so much. But internally, I'm thinking, man, if they found out what I'm struggling with, they'd string me up and burn me at the stake. And the pressure of that built and built and built And instead of confidently coming before my Father in heaven and telling him what I'm dealing with and asking him for the forgiveness for my stumbles and asking him for the help that I needed in the the time of need, especially when the temptations came, I instead believed my conscience, which had gone far past simple right and wrong and had started to condemn me and telling me that I should run and hide 
before anybody found out who I really was. Whew. I was like, don't cry. Because uh, you see, at the time, the enemy in my conscience had gotten me to believe that my status as God's child was in question. It had gotten me to believe that, that God was so disappointed in me that he would disown me. That God would, 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 would just say, you're not welcome in my house anymore. That the family of Christ would, would completely uh, hate me. And so the last thing I could do was talk to God or anybody else about it. The last thing I could do was confess because I probably wouldn't be forgiven anyways. And here's the kicker. In the moment of dealing with that, I fully believed that if anybody else went to God in any moment, God would forgive them instantaneously. But my conscience got me to believe that that applied to everybody but me. And so I shut down the ministry by leaving it, made up some excuse of why, oh, God says it's done. At the height of its success, oh, no, I'm done, we're shutting it down. I walked away from the ministry, ended up walking away from the church, and what I did was ran back to the trees of the world, hid from God, hid from my family in Christ, broke fellowship with all of it because my guilt had tripped me up so completely and it held me down. And guess what? Running away didn't fix it. Hiding from God didn't fix it. A couple years go by, I'm depressed. I get suicidal. I come to the point where I decided to take my own life. But during that time, I never doubted God's existence. I never doubted who Jesus was. I just couldn't accept that he would still want to love me. But the whole time, the whole time, there was always this presence. There was always this presence that, that when I bothered to pay attention, would reassure me that he had not left me. I knew that he remained in me. And he told me over and over I was not condemned. I was not convicted. All was not lost. He still loved me. I was still welcome in his house. His hand was still extended towards me and all I had to do was reach out and take hold of it by faith and we would be good. And one day out of just sheer desperation, I reached out, not even able to believe that he would reach back. And I experienced how much greater than my conscience God was. For he knew me, he knew my heart, and he took me back. If you are a child of God today, and the Spirit testifies in your heart the truth that you believe in the name of Jesus Christ as your savior. That you believe that he is God in the flesh who died on the cross for you. If the spirit of God testifies that you do indeed desire to do good, you desire to love others, you have a new nature that God has granted to you that you want to honor God even though you may stumble and fall. But guilt has been causing you to try and hide from God, run from God. If your conscience has you feeling condemned, it's time to trip up your guilt trip. It's time to say no. I believe God is speaking to you today, saying your conscience may be trying to condemn you, 
but I do not because you are my child and I love you. I love you dearly. So be confident and be assured that you can approach him now. He still loves you. He still welcomes you. He still stands there with open arms now and forever. So I'm going to pray in a moment and if you're a believer who's been racked with guilt, who's living under the condemnation of your own conscience, I'm going to pray with you in a moment that you would just come back to him as hard as it may be to turn your face back to the light Realize he never left. Realize he never went anywhere. Realize that the fact that you've been trying not to make eye contact doesn't mean he's not looking right at you. With a love you can't even explain. And I want you to take this opportunity to confess whatever sin it is. To claim the blood of Jesus Christ, to claim the atonement that he is for you and to have your fellowship restored today. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, there are so many in your family in the world today that are living in condemnation. There are so many, Lord, that have believed the lies of the enemy and the lies of their own conscience that have convinced them that you don't love them anymore has convinced them that you don't welcome them anymore, has convinced them that that all is lost, that they are condemned. And Lord, we know according to your word that if someone is your child, they are your child forever. That as John has been writing this letter, Lord, to reassure those that would read it to reassure that those who are truly in the family of God are truly in the family of God. And that at no time, with any stumble or fall in choosing obedience or loving one another or walking in the light, at no time does their stumble cause them to be permanently separated from you. Lord, we do have broken fellowship in those moments, but God, you stand there always and ready to restore that fellowship through our confession, through our forgiveness, and washing us clean anew. We know that our salvation is done one time, God, but Lord, even with the disciples, you gave them an example of having to wash the feet, God, that we need to come to you, Lord, for, for a daily cleansing in the, in the concept, Lord, of saying, God, I'm carrying this guilt. I'm carrying this wrongdoing that I've done. Please forgive me, Lord. Please renew my heart. Please reassure my conscience that we're good. And so, Lord, I pray right now for those who have been struggling with this, God, here in our room and online. That, Lord, as they just pray a prayer, Lord, to say, God, I confess. God, I'm so sorry that I've sinned against you. I don't want to sin against you, but I did. As they would ask you, God, for forgiveness for that sin, those sins. 
that they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that because you are their advocate, you are their atonement, because of the new nature that's within them and the Holy Spirit that testifies that you remain in them, God, that they are indeed forgiven, that they are indeed washed clean, and that their fellowship is indeed restored with you. Lord, I pray, God, that they would continue to come to you every single day and every single moment to start every day saying, God, help me choose obedience today. I don't want to dishonor you. Help me to live for you today. That, God, they would experience the glory of you working in and through them to give them the strength to do what they can't do on their own. And Lord, I pray you would break the spirit of guilt trips that are holding your people down to break the chains of that bondage that we would be set free to bask in the glory of who you are and what you've done. Thank you for loving us so much, God. Thank you for loving us so much that you would do this for us. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. If you need some specific prayer after we close in worship, um, please come forward. I'll be up front. I'll have some elders up front to pray with you and to pray specifically for those situations that you're like, ah, I'm all bound up in the guilty conscience. God's breaking that. He's already broke it. It's just time to walk in that. Amen? Amen. God bless you guys.